Welcome to our new episode of our podcast series on the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to delve into the profound events that transpired during the last week of Jesus' life. Today we're exploring what I believe to be the most critical trial in the history of humanity. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and welcome whether you're here for the very first time or you've been along from the very beginning. If you are here for the very first time, can I suggest that you subscribe and that way you'll never miss another single episode and that way you will have made the decision to make the study, not just the reading of the Word, but the in-depth study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life. New episodes are posted Monday to Friday pretty much every week, with occasional bonus episodes at the weekend or at the change of seasons. So with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now. Hang on at the end if you want to hear more ways of accessing other free Bible teaching resources. But with that all said, we'll drop back into the text where we left off last time and pick up at the beginning of Mark chapter 15. Okay, friends, welcome back. Today's time together I've called The Greatest Trial in History and we'll be covering the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15. We're in the last week of Jesus' life now. You know, I live in the UK and every day in towns and cities the length and breadth of this country, trials are held, both large and small. Now, most of these go unnoticed, but once in a while the media will pick up a trial or a case And sometimes it will even be referred to as the trial of the decade or even the trial of the century. I would imagine if you live in America, things like the O.J. Simpson trial a few years ago may have met that criteria. But what I want to talk about today is a trial that took place 2,000 years ago and one that I sincerely believe was the most important trial in the history of the human race. This trial stands head and shoulders above all others in terms of significance. And although it happened over two millennia ago, it still has consequences today. And it is still as relevant today as the day it happens. And I say it's relevant because it still affects us. It affects everyone on this planet in the profoundest and deepest of ways. In the passage we're looking at today, we have one of the trials of Jesus. And if you've been following along with me so far, you'll know I've said that this is one of a series of trials in the life of Christ. I actually pointed out that there are six, six cross-examinations in total, all of them occurring in the last week of Jesus' life. Now you have to look across all of the four gospel accounts to see them all, to find that total of six. And there, if you do that, you will discover that three of them are Jewish and three of them are Roman. Now, this one is the big one, the last of the six trials and definitely the most significant. And it's a trial, a cross-examination that takes place before someone called Pontius Pilate. So let's start at the beginning of our text today. I'm going to do as what I usually do, which is I'm going to look at each verse, verse by verse, 
and uh, try and unpick it and pack it a little bit and then I'll try and draw it all together and see what the big picture is towards the end. So today's passage begins in Mark 15 verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version which is my usual pattern and it begins by telling us very early in the morning the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Now we saw a few days ago that the Jewish leadership had held a trial as well. Now that trial was not an official trial in the legal sense of the terms, as the matter of fact it was illegal in every possible way as they defined it at that time, by their own rules and regulations. And here today this opening verse picks up the narrative the next morning, when both teachers and the elders, in fact, we are told the whole council of the Sanhedrin are meeting together. And we are told they tie Jesus up and take him and hand him over to Pilate. Now they have to do that because if you recall, they had already decided that although they put him on trial, in order to kill him, they did, well, they didn't have the power and authority to carry out that sentence. So although that's what they wanted, they want, they need to, must hand him over to Pontius Pilate because being the Roman governor, he was the only one who had the power to issue that final order, the order to put Jesus Christ to death. So the problem for the Sanhedrin is they'd found him guilty of something that under their law made him worthy of death, capital punishment. But what he was found guilty of, what they had found him guilty of, did not meet the criteria under the Roman law to warrant an execution. In the Jewish trial, the charge had been blasphemy. But what could they say to the Roman authorities that would enable them to legitimately execute him? Well, we'll see they were given the answer to that question in the next verse, verse 2, which tells us, Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Are you the king of the Jews? There, my friends, is the hint. The answer's in the question. They obviously told Pilate he was claiming to be a king, a king of the Jews. Now this would have been significant to the Romans because if they thought someone was trying to usurp the authority of Rome and claim to be a king, then this was indeed very serious, even worthy potentially of execution. Which is why just asked Jesus, are you in fact the king of the Jews as they say? And Jesus' response is nuanced but pretty straightforward he says, you have said so. Now that's all Mark tells us in his account. However, if we look in John's Gospel, in his account of these events, he gives us a little more detail. So here's Jesus' answer from the text in John's Gospel account, the full text of what he actually said. Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, It is you who say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Okay, because of this interaction between Jesus and Pilate, what we've seen here and more detail of, he reaches a conclusion that's spoken of later in the chapter when he will actually say, I find no fault in this man. 
A biblical scholar I read has written, Pilate must have concluded that such a claim of kingship was not a politically motivated one or in any way dangerous to the state. It seems that Pilate concluded that Jesus was not this dangerous revolution that was presented to him and therefore was no real threat to Rome. Okay, so that's Pilate's conclusion, but the story continues in the next verse where it tells us the chief priests had accused him of many things. So, they have failed on this accusation, the most serious one, you might say, the one serious enough to warrant execution, so the chief priests had to come up with some other accusations. Now, Mark doesn't chose to elaborate on the detail here. He just mentions that they accused him of many things. But thankfully, Luke does it for us. So let me now read from Luke's accounts of the same event in Luke chapter 23. This is why we need the whole counsel of Scripture when approaching the Word of God. Yes, we've got to keep individual passages in context, but sometimes, particularly in the narrative accounts, we need to gather the whole thing together to find that full and harmonious message. So here we go, Luke chapter 23, describing the same event, says this, Then... The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of tax to Caesar and claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he replied, You have said so. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He is stirring up all the people over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. So you can see there that as well as the accusation being that he's a king, a false king, he now stands accused of corrupting the tax system, telling people in fact not to pay their taxes and raising what would be described as an insurrection, a rebellion. So here we have the Sanhedrin making another accusation, but again we can note how Jesus responds this time. Mark 15, 4 and 5 says, So again Pilate answers, Aren't you going to answer this? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So Jesus simply doesn't answer their other charges. Now his silence is not motivated by hostility, and certainly not by guilt. He has chosen to remain silent because he wants to allow the false accusers to make their claims and thereby reveal, of course, their true motivations. But there's more than that to this. His main reason for remaining silent was so that he would fulfill the will of God, both in prophecy, as described in Isaiah 53, and in the reality of the situation he's in. So by remaining silent, he is allowing God to fulfill his plan of redemption for the whole human race in the way it was described in Isaiah. He accepts that all will come to pass as from the will of God. And this tells me something for us to do when we're facing situations like this. That is, whether we need to be patient and sometimes just wait on God to fulfill the promises he's made to us, no matter how difficult or unjust those circumstances might be. Anyway, back in the text, and the plot continues to thicken. Mark fifteen six. Now, it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. 
This is an extra twist in the story, and it adds a deeper significance to the narrative. And within this little bit here, I think there's something that's often overlooked. The festival referred to here is, of course, the Passover. We had that told us even as they journeyed towards it. We knew that this was where they were coming together for. And during that festival, a prisoner chosen by the people could be and would be released. So let's look at what happens next. In 15, 7 and 8, it says, A man called Barabbas was in prison, chained up, it adds, with the insurrectionists, those who had committed murder in an uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So what he usually did is to ask for someone to be released and freed. So a man actually accused of being a real insurrectionist, someone who's guilty, a prisoner, found guilty legitimately, he says that person, they say that person should be set free. Pilate must have thought, are you sure about this? You're asking me to choose to release a man who's a murderer and an insurrectionist, a terrorist we might say in today's term. Not only that, but a leader of a terrorist group. So Pilate qualifies what they're asking by double-checking with the crowd again, is this what they really want in verse 9? He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now Pilate probably questions this in order to get himself off the hook in case this whole situation backfires. He himself knew and believed Jesus was innocent, but he was also probably nervous of releasing such a man as Barabbas back into the community. And it actually confirms for us in the next verse that Pilate understood this and understood this was their motivation by saying that he, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. You see, Pilate knew. Pilate recognised this whole situation. He knew that he was being pushed, being driven, and the motivation of those doing it, the chief priests, was out of envy and self-interest. And the evidence is clear in the next verses. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd again to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So Pilate asked them again, What shall I do with the one who is king of the Jews? So Pilate gives them another opportunity to let the situation pass, to let it be something a little less than the death penalty. But the crowd respond again by saying, Mark 15, 13 and 14, They say, Crucify him, they shout. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shout back all the louder, crucify him. So the crowds, it appears to me, are almost baying at this point. They're no longer interested in thinking about what Jesus might or might not have done. They're just crying, crucify him, every chance they get. They've been whipped up into a frenzy. And Pilate, probably for his own fearful reasons, well, he might have been reluctant to do that, but now the crowd, in this final state, with their final response, seals the deal, so to speak. By the way, the other gospel writers at this point tell us this is the point where Pilate actually washes his hands of the whole grubby affair. Again, as a symbol to say, be it on your heads, I find no fault in him. And then the final verse we're looking at today says, Wanting to satisfy the crowds, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. So Jesus is innocent and Barabbas is guilty of murder and insurrection. But the crowd, manipulated by the religious leaders, want the lawbreaker set free and the lawkeeper crucified. 
So Jesus took Barabbas' place. Barabbas deserved to die legitimately under the law of that time, but Jesus being crucified in his place meant Barabbas, the guilty one, would walk free. I wonder if that basic description of what's going on here rings any bells for you. Imagine Barabbas a few hours later, he would be able to walk past the cross of Jesus and see him hanging there and say, wow, that should have been me. And what was true of Barabbas is true of us all, I would say. When we look at the cross, we too should be saying that should have been me. Because we are all lawbreakers. Every single one of us has not lived up to God's standards. The difference is sometimes we think we'll get away with it because we haven't been caught yet. But you know what? God knows you better than anybody else. Maybe, in truth, you're just being complacent because you feel you haven't been found out yet. But God knows the heart of everyone. And we too, in our inner selves, our inner conscience, know it too. You know, as a practical joke, that famous writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, he sent a telegram to 12 of his closest friends, and some of them who were very influential. And that telegram that he sent, as a, we call it a prank today, had just four words on it. It said, flee, all is revealed. Within 24 hours, he says, six of those friends had left the country. Isn't that interesting? The plain truth is God knows everything about us. And by the way, fleeing the country won't solve the problem physically or spiritually. But although we are guilty like Barabbas, also just like in Barabbas' case, Jesus can take our place. At the beginning of today's time together, I suggested that this one was one of the greatest trials in history. And let me tell you why I think that. Have you ever noticed that when you read across the four gospel accounts, how much material there is about the last week of Christ's life? I read somewhere, I think I can remember, that over 30% of the gospel narrative covers the last seven days of Jesus' life. Now that's very different from most biographies that you would read. They would tend to focus on the childhood and the development of an individual, what went into making a great person the person they are today. In a modern biography, the last week of an individual's life, I've been reliably informed that the last week should be less than 1% of the text. So what's going on here when we see nearly one-third of the whole text of the story of Jesus and his life is given over to these final few days? Well, I think the gospel writers are obviously trying to tell us that the death of Jesus is really important. And that's why I believe that this is the most important trial in human history. It is ironic that the greatest atrocity committed by humanity ever, the killing of the Son of God, at the same time brought the greatest, widest blessing possible ever to all humankind. And I want to make one final point. And that again asks the question, why when participating in the greatest trial in history did Jesus Christ choose to remain silent? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes prophesies that and foretells it for us when it tells us this. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance.
a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them in, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear down and a time to mend, and a time to be silent and a time to speak. Friends, there is a time to speak and there is a time to be silent. And when Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, It is as you say. But when the chief priests accused him of all kinds of things, he remained silent. And that was because Jesus knew that there was a time to speak and there was a time to remain silent. And may I suggest that we too should do the same. And may I also suggest that in fact, usually that we do the exact opposite of what we should do. We often speak when we should be quiet and we often don't speak when we should. We are silent when we should witness to Christ and we speak out when we should not even respond. Frankly, there are times when we should avoid and not even bother to give the option of publicity to those who make false accusations against us. In this case, the accusers were set on killing him, no matter what, no matter what he said. And there are times in our Christian life when your answers or your answer will be of no avail and you actually would be best to just be silent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter on love, it says love does not express itself rudely. Sometimes, even in defending our position, we focus too much on trying to be right, too much on trying to win the argument and not enough on helping the other person find the truth. Love does not give us the right to prove we are right if it damages someone else's search for God. Silent response. The silent service of others is, I believe, the most powerful expression of the love of God and Christ and of any hostile question about him. In the final analysis, knowing when to speak and when to keep silent is actually all about love. It's a hallmark of mature Christian love. James in chapter 3 tells us that if we control our tongues and know when to speak and when not to speak, that's the most important thing of all. Because when we are not able to control our tongues, we are moving our whole body and our whole personality to a place that it shouldn't be. So the next time you face a false accusation about Christ or you hear a false accusation being made to him, think carefully about the response that should be on your lips. Because that response will be evidence of how Christ-like you really are. I would simply add this and with this I'll close. The voice of a spiritually mature person speaks the loudest sometimes by being silent when all around them gossip and anger and turmoil rage tongues wag. Okay friends, that's it for today. I do hope you found that a helpful passage and thank you for joining me here today. You know, the significance of this trial can't be overrated. 
Nearly as I said, a third of the whole gospel narrative focuses on this last week of Christ's life, emphasizing the importance of his death and the gravest atrocity ever, the killing of the Son of God. Yet how paradoxically these events that we're going to be looking at in our closing run out of Mark's gospel are the events described that bring about the greatest blessing ever for humankind. So we're going to be taking our time. We're nearly at the end of the text, but we're going to be probably about another week in this book, another five days anyway. So thank you again for joining with me. My name's Jeremy McCandless, and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And if you enjoyed our time together here, and it's one of the first times you've been here, can I suggest that you click on the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave a review or share this podcast on social media. Help other people make the decision to make the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. Help other people bring the teaching and the Spirit of God within the orbit of their lives, that they might respond to it in free will. Can I remind you that this podcast is hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprite.com, at buzzsprite.com, and that's the place you'll find links to other ways of connecting to this ministry. With every episode, there's a full episode notes page, as well as an actual transcript of what I've said. Those are there for you to freely access and use in whatever way you want. And you'll also find links to other places like the social networks, my LinkedIn page, the YouTube channel, which is becoming YouTube audio version of it will become the long-term archive of this teaching because that way it will be more accessible in playlist format by book and by theme. You'll even find a place where you can partner with this ministry if you feel so called by God where you can help support this along with a small group of other people who, by their support, enables this teaching to be made free, freely available on so many platforms around the world. So thank you again for joining with me, and I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. Whatever day it is for you, that's fine, because work through this and listen to this at whatever pace suits you. So with that said, I'll just say bye-bye for now.